Well, welcome to the Redemptification Podcast. I'm back at it again after traveling a month in Italy for Nelson, our son, to get married. And today, I'm excited. I think some of my best thinking's done when I'm hanging out with this guy. And uh, I'm so thankful that that we've got Doug Wilson here. He's a founder and chairman of of Monon Capital. But more than that, he's got this imagination and way to distill things. We were having a chat at the gathering, which was my first year this past year, and it blew my socks off. Such great people. I felt like a mosquito in a nudist colony. There were so many awesome people. But Doug and I started talking, and he thinks so deeply about things and cares deeply about things that I think and care deeply about. And his friendship and his words are just, they echo and harmonize in my heart. And I hope today we can share some of those things. I said, it's just too darn good to keep it to ourselves. So I'm grateful to have you here, Doug. Thanks for taking a little bit of time and sharing your your heart, your story with us. Well, thank you, John. It is just a delight. You know, it feels like we've been friends for a really long time, and it's not been nearly that long, but it you know, there's just a deep resonance with, and, and I've learned so much from you. The number of times I tell people about re- redemptification is, you know, I, I just can't count the number, and it's such a great gift that you give everyone, So I and I'm one of those, so thank you. Well, it's exciting, and, and we have a lot to talk about. Doug has a great project with going in his community in Carmel, Carmel Indiana, and he's And he's in a place, he's loving his place and as we're loving our place and each feel called to a place to show up Mm -hmm. and be to thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the places we live. So I'm excited to talk about that and to talk about what it means to love a place and some of the challenges. And and you gave me some great wisdom. We're there. So I've got my notes. We're going to kind of hit some of the best of those as we go along. So give us a quick update on what's happening with you guys and the work you're doing there. Well, the project is called North End, and it is also part of a thing that we created called Fields Park Trust. The history of it started, it's actually, I think we're in year four and five right now. So this came as a result of imagination that said, there's 28 acres literally across the street and down about, I don't know, 400 yards from my house. And a dear, dear friend of mine is a developer and the neighbors had come to him and said, would you be interested in this project? And, you know, it's interesting to think about it in terms of development, but it spurred a thought that we had about what could we do that would really be a blessing to the community? So the only thing that really stirred our imagination, the first part was, well, how do we do this in a way that actually is a blessing to people? And my partner is, I'm like, you know, when I say partner, we're like partners, like friends, you know, he is, he's the guy. (laughs) We did a lot of this imagining together with another individual, Rebecca. And we started with the idea of, well, we know how the land's zoned and there's some property here that Justin already had. And it kind of came down to maybe we can figure out what this could all be. And we knew it was going to end up being some combination of uh, mixed use, some for sale product, which would be single family homes, townhomes, condominiums, and then a multi uh, uh, multifamily. There was an uh, urban, we've called it now an urban farm. And then there was a historic home on the property. So all of that was kind of in the mix, but what triggered our imagination was what could you, how could you actually bless people through this? So I'll put that there as kind of, that was the 
soil, if you will. And then what began to happen was we began individually to hear people in the community saying things like, you know, I'm really not sure where my 26-year-old son, who is a high-functioning individual on the spectrum, you might think about it as autism most commonly, but I don't know where they're going to live when I when I die. And the other folks were hearing that from other families, you know, it'd be that my daughter, it'd be, you know, I've got a nephew. I And pretty soon it began to coalesce around this idea of, I wonder what it'd look like if we could create within North End, particularly in the multifamily world, what would happen if we could create accessible housing for those individuals so that they could truly flourish? And we began toying with this idea of, well, there's lots of diversity in the world. I wonder what it would look like if you thought about neurodiversity. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you that was not a phrase that was in my head at all. <laughs> but it dawned on me that pretty quickly that there are communities of people for whom there are good housing options available. And there's also communities in which there aren't no, there is no mm -hmm. housing available. But almost every time it is distinct. Like you'd go someplace and you'd find a building designed for a for people. Nobody had really done something that said, well, what would happen? Like in our case, we said, we're going to create 40 apartments out of, let's say, roughly 240 in the multifamily and dedicate those in the accessible or affordable kind of range in which they're somewhere between 30 to 50% of the market rate. So it started with a question of, I wonder if we could bless people through some things we're doing here. And then it kind of came to a listening phase of, well, who might those individuals be knowing then that it's going to create an entire community? So, but that that's the unique factor. But then also, you know, we have single family homes that are going to be well north of a million dollars. We have townhomes and apartments and multi-use buildings. So that's kind of the the flavor of it at this point. And, and your audacious kind of dream here gets to the point of the matter. When we start dreaming like this, how in the world are we going to pay for this, make this work, align this, and 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 all the challenges that are that are there. Something I thought about that I wanted to mention from my notes was you spoke a little bit about the the difference in connection and production. And you use the example, build a bear. And you said that was the least efficient way to get a stuffed animal, but you brought your customers into it. And what I'm hearing you say is you brought the community into the connection of the needs of this development. You started with a need and it wasn't and it wasn't a return. I mean, uh, what does it mean to start with needs and not returns? Well, it simplistically for us, it started with none of us knew anything about the needs other than the fact that we had heard them expressed. I don't know that any of us would say we had an up close and personal environment uh, experience with it, other than back in my history, a long time ago when I got out of college, I had a responsibility for an organization that was serving the intellectually and developmentally disabled. That also, that organization happened to be founded by my, one of our partners, Justin, who's mm -hmm. the developer. So I think there was mm -hmm. a natural affinity to when this need came up, it's like, oh, you know, this is, this is very, very real. And then Rebecca, who is 
really central to this. We, we call her the mayor of North End because she's really <laughs> the one who drives this most of the time. And the notion of being a caring spirit and then being out and listening to the community and engaging with the people who are in this work every day and engaging with families. So when somebody would call, I'd run into somebody and they'd say, I hear a little bit about this. I'd say, you really should talk to Rebecca because she is the individual who is carrying a lot of the vision on a day-to-day basis, meaning that she has a heart. We all have a heart, but there's something in the way that her heart leans into people that they go, wow, this is real. Now, before we get too carried away, it's in this is that we are uh, we are going vertical. We have single family homes that have already been sold. They're, some of them are occupied. We have townhomes that are sold and we'll have our multifamily coming on and some of the apartments will be ready here towards the end of the year. So we're, we're very much in progress with this whole, this whole work. But the heart of it really kind of came down to how do we listen well? And part of that listening included, what does flourishing mean to people? And when we would talk about, we want to help build a community in which people can flourish, it's not just a group of buildings. It's also around how do we create the experiences that people go, wow, I would choose this. Not utopia, but one of saying they're making every reasonable, not even reasonable, they're making every (laughs) effort to say we're building it as we go. I thought about this when you and I talked about investors. You said, John, investors need a little bit of nudge along the way to remember you're working and things. And so you told me about a story about honey. And you said, this honey is at least a way we can say there. So let's talk a minute about investment and let's talk a minute about that. So first, how did you nudge them along and remind them? And what is your investment structure kind of like? Like, how did you put this together? Well, in the broadest sense, one of the things that I was particularly after, we were particularly after, was enabling charitable-based capital, particularly donor-advised funds, to be put to work. I read a statistic not that long ago now, but that the average donor-advised fund returns 4.2%. And if you think about not what you give out of it, that's one thing, but there's a corpus often. And the question is, is that corpus being managed in an active way to be useful in your local community? And generally speaking, people don't even think about it. It's managed by somebody somewhere. And that's, that's not a bad thing. I mean, but when you go to people and you say, you know, that part of your corpus, would you be interested in investing a piece of that into something you can walk by, see, touch, and know that it's actually a blessing to people in this community. You know, going back to our original conversation, this is for me what is helpful for people to become somewhere people and not Mm -hmm. just anywhere people. It's like, you mean if I live in this community, I can actually be part of making this happen? Yes, you can. (laughs) And here's what it looks like. So we merged private capital, charitable capital, created a normal equity stack here. If you think about this project, it'll probably total somewhere around about 150 million in total investment, all the way from 50 million in mixed use to maybe 36 million in the for sale product, the 60 million in active 
we've seen your living community in all likelihood. We we're still working on an LOI for that one, but that's that'll be in the next phase. Urban farm grants. So we have all kinds of things going on, but it, it's going to total a pretty big number, all on about 28 acres. So two pieces. One is a a blend of charitable, private, and then also government funding in the sense that the state of Indiana essentially said, you know, you guys live in a pretty nice area. And that is a true mm. statement. Mm. And to, But we are so intrigued by this notion of providing affordable housing. We, we got a tax credit that we were able to use in this part of the equity stack. And then the city, the city of Carmel is spectacular. And they did a TIF bond to help rebuild the road. It's developer backed. So all the risk lies with the developer, not the city. But that allowed us to build some infrastructure. So it's that's not even included in these numbers. The multifamily ultimately was the investors will get their return when it's stabilized and we're able to kick in with, we already negotiated a uh, 30-year non-recourse funding pattern. So right now things are, uh, let's say it's, it, it, we've lived through the white knuckle stage and it's a little <laughs> less white knuckly. Uh, <laughs> But as you know, development, a master plan really is a master plan until you're done. And then you can look at it and say, <laughs> well, that was, that was interesting. Um, you know what you're doing, but there's so many unknowns. So, and that we're about, I would say maybe a, a year behind somewhere between the pandemic and supply chain things that's put us behind, but we're, we're tracking along. Well, and so you gave honey to these investors as a little experience of, yes. of just getting started. So two things, there's a lot of really interesting timber on the land. So one of the individuals who's involved in this uh, neurodiverse community is a woodworker. And he created cutting boards that are just beautiful, live edge cutting boards. So we did that. And then on the, um, on the urban farm, we have bees and we created local honey. And to your point, we wanted to create an experience that allowed people to see the reality of what was happening and that this would continue, but that as an investor, you're not just an investor. You're, if I could be so bold, I would call the investors as kind of investor residents. <laughs> they don't really live there. But on the other hand, we want them to have a feel of being totally a part of the community as much as the people are who live there. We've done the same thing on the mixed use we don't have tenants as you would normally think about it in the commercial space. We have what we've called business residents. And I and love you, this part of the story. What you told us about the lawyer. Yeah. Good one. So let's yes. share with the guys. How do you, what is the difference in a tenant and a business resident? Well, in some ways it's almost like, how do you get to it? Not a shared expectation, but a shared understanding. Mm. So if you're going to have space in this multi, you you could be in any office complex anywhere and you just show up and you do your thing. What we wanted to create was an idea that you are an integral part of the community, of the people who live here, both people who come in. So we're not, this isn't a, a cloistered thing. It's one of, yeah, people come in, but it's almost one of how do you have, how do we help people have an imagination for how they could make a contribution to the community or how the community could be a blessing to them? Very much everything that we've that we do and try to do is framed through the lens of if the ethical is the baseline, it's not the goal. 
what is it that exists beyond the ethical? And that's where, as, as you've taught me, this is when we're now operating out here in the redemptification land. We're, we're helping people return to how things were originally planned to be. So it's really, it's actually not a thing. We don't, you know, we don't have like expectations in which we say you will do this. It's really around how do we create an environment where people feel invited, welcomed, that they can participate. So if it turns out that we have a law firm and one of their staff looks around and says, you know, as a part of the community, I think I'd like to do a study table for the kids who live in the neighborhood. Our mission is to say, fabulous. What space can we help you with? What can we do to help with that? It's really to help people in a way that it encourages their instinct to lean in, whereas otherwise it's it's really not human. It's really more organizations are doing things. And it is true that, you know, we all come together and, you know, a law firm's a law firm, but it's actually a group of people. And if they have an instinct to want to serve the community around them, let's let's enable that in whatever way that looks like. And even open the conversation. I kind of remember you said the law firm wanted to come in. You say, hey, hey, let's just let's let's talk about we've talked about what it would take. Does it meet your needs? But how could you add value to the community? And it was even something like a yeah. community uh, concert or something like. Yes. You, you asked them, could you lean into making a community investment and in something you care about? Yes. And it's it's more than just being a financial sponsor. So it's financial sponsors are good, but if all you're to do is put your sign up, we would say that is so gracious. But what else would it be that would allow you to feel like you're making a contribution to a community that you're actually a part of? You you know, you, you all come here, you work here every day. <laughs> and a big part of it John, is why we choose the word business resident rather than tenant. And I've come to see in many, many ways now that the words that we choose actually communicate to people what their opportunity is. Mm. We're not trying to say you're a business resident, therefore you must do this. It's really one of, you know, the, the, the comment back was, I don't think I know what a business resident is. I said, well, we don't either, but we're pretty <laughs> sure we're all going to be here together. So <laughs> what if we, can we create a an understanding, a shared experience of what that looks like? Can we, can we actually build what that word means together because we actually care for each other? And it's like, it was almost, it's almost like having a sense of freedom mm-hmm. of, um, you know, there's that old line about, you know, you you open the door, but nobody actually leaves mm-hmm. into a bigger sense of freedom. We're trying to create a bigger sense of freedom for people in which they can go, you know, I've always wanted to do this, but it just either felt weird or, you know, and, and the commercial side, so, you know, we have leasing agents, we have tenants, and then you have somebody who owns, you know, the landlord. And it's like, it's not based on a relationship. It's based on a transaction. And what mm-hmm. we've said is there are things that have to happen and be documented and all that. But, oh, that's good. But we really want to push into the notion that relationships 
yeah. are where it matters. Yeah, the difference in relational and transactional is such a big thing. And, um, you know, it's it's important that we have you and I talked about something that really struck me, and it's how some communities lose hope. I mean, and and they're they they and they get to the place that there's hopelessness and it's so unpleasant being there that their town like it's got so much deferred maintenance and so little care and love. And they've tried so many bake sales and so many historic commissions that they've tried all these things and it just doesn't seem to work. You know, that mm-hmm. that is a start. And I, I thought it was interesting. We said it finally, they only see it as a liability instead of an asset. That's right. That's right. Well, you've lived that so much. And I think that's, I think helping people, the way I think about it is, I want to get people to suspend their disbelief to start with. I'm not trying to convince them that there is this sense of a bigger picture. There is a sense of abundance. There's a lot of hard work yet to be done. You deal with it. This project is filled with really hard work. Matter of fact, I think the probably the harder work uh, came when the realization is that you actually can't successfully execute on all fronts simultaneously. You have to you have to put some things down, nurture them, care for them, but their time will come, but it's not right now. And that is really hard when you are, are you know, you kind of want to act. This is me. It's like, well, if I can see it as potential, why aren't we acting on it? You know, so it's like, yeah, I I'm a I'm a spin 12 plate kind of guy. Well, it seems more efficient if you could do it that way. But you mean I got to pause and try to live inside the tension? And, you know, I think about your muscle only knows one language, time under tension. I Uh think our faith only knows one thing. And and even in your, your partners, isn't it interesting that your past, God knew what you were going through would be part of where you were going to. Yes. You needed the context where you were going. To love that place. And that for me is the biggest part of this is if you would have said to me at any point in my life that this project would end up being across the street and down four or 500 yards, I, I could not, I could not have fathomed that. And it's not a, not my backyard kind of thing. I mean, this whole project is everything about yes in my backyard. You know, we want to do this, but I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see the opportunity. I didn't have the imagination, but as God grew me through this process and then ended up making this relationship with the developer who actually turns out to be the, he's the grandson of a couple that mentored my wife and I, as we were growing. And then he's a builder. He built the house we're in and that, that started our friendship and, you know, his parents went to high school with my wife and I. So at, at a core of this, it's like I'm living my intergenerational friendship life here uh, in spades and I love it. But it is in that, that God planted this thing of, well, how about this, this community? And how about here? I was like in the first reaction and Justin is fabulous at this. And I've, I follow him on this. I think it's a, a gift that I have as well as the two questions I think a lot about are why not and how might we? 
Mm. And I've come to that because throughout my own business career, when people ask why, it's pretty rare that they're actually really asking why to understand. They're, it's really kind of a passive aggressive way to disagree with you <laughs> or to show you the error of your ways, or you haven't thought about this enough. And I, I've kind of rejected that. Well, not kind of, I have rejected that and said, I'm going to live into the land of imagination, which says, when somebody has something they're thinking about, my questions are always, why not? And how might we do that? There'll be plenty of time to figure out the challenges that go with it. But let's don't start with all the reasons it's going to fail. Let's start with how might we do that? And it spurs incredible creativity. It um, reminds me of me and Ash. I used to call her affectionately the dream squisher. Because every time I I pitch a dream to her in her loving way to try to help me, she said, now, how do you think you're going to pay for that? Who's going to mm. insure that? And what about, I said, baby, this ain't working for me. I said, I got to have dreams are tender. I got to have a little bit of time to get them built before we put them to that yes. kind of test. And now she makes me laugh because in our vision time every week, she, she says two things when I tell her my ideas. Mmm, interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. And I said, the more you say that, the more excited I get. Yes. I can count on Jane Ann. She will let me dream and imagine all kinds of things, but there's always a point where she she has this instinct of, oh, this could get serious. Uh -oh. And that's what that's when she, it's it's not any pumping the brakes. It's more like I really need to engage because he doesn't need any more encouragement, but he may need a little bit of, <laughs> this would be good to kind of talk this out a little bit. And we have all kinds of fun stories around that, but it's, uh, I think a gift that we can all bring to each other is that notion of how do we help people feel like pushing forward and exploration is a good thing. It's not, it's not all that risky, but it's going to make you feel like you just jumped to the front of the parade that nobody knew they were in. And all of a sudden, right. they're looking at you saying, oh, I guess you're leading. And you're going, well, I could. But what I really want to do is put something out here we could all rally around. I'm not trying to figure out how to right. be a leader. I just want to rally people. I just to want this, to be there with, wrestle with it. it. I just want to be in the – I mean, I said, listen, I just – I want to be on the – I said, God, give me front row seats to miracles, 50-yard line seats. I don't care whose miracle they yes. are. But what Ash and I use now is – we start with provisional, no idea is a bad idea. We identify when we move to plan, which means we're going there, but we don't know how yet. Uh-huh. And then when we get to promise, come hell or high water, we're given our word. Wow. And if there's anything she'll say is, John, I've heard this about four or five times in the vision thing. Are, are we working toward a plan? Yeah. <laughs> And yes. now even my team, Brad and them will say, can you make, they may, I'm building this big dream document I've got and I'm at a hundred and something slides so far. And they forced me to put it in provisional plan and promise the whole document. And so wow. it's, it's, it's been such a healing thing because in provisional, I can say anything, I can dream anything and when we get to plan, we say we want to do this. We don't have all the numbers. We're not sure how in the world we're going to. We need, honestly, we need fishes and loaves and miracles, but we want to do it. Right. 
But then promise we creating the entities, putting our name on the dotted line, signing and getting permits. It, we're off to the races and we're committed as a team. You know, part of my world within um, Monon Capital, we have what I call one of the elements is a venture lab. And it really is the place where we dream and think about interesting problems. So one of which is North End and the structure we used is FieldSpark Trust, and it's a supporting organization of NCF who's been a terrific partner in helping us work through the complexities of all the things you have to do if you're going to begin to blend charitable and private capital together and all that. But at the other end, it's almost like it's it's a place where I can explore interesting problems. Mm. So an example of that was in the dude ranch industry. So here's a here's an industry in which I'll make up a number here. Let's say there are 500 guest ranch dude ranches in the United States. Next year there might be I'll say 502 or 498, but it is it is nowhere near a market that has huge growth. So if you talk about total addressable market in the software world, people go, "No, I'm not going there because there's no market." But that's because Generally speaking, software is based on a theory that you should have the largest number of transactions is who wins. And we kind of turned that on the head and said, well, what if we did it relationally? What if we said we want to mirror the relationship that those ranches have with their guests, deeply relational? People come and spend time, they go back over and over and over again and build a kind of a blend of a customer relationship management plus hospitality plus booking system for them, but that serve them. And we said, and you get to own your own data. We we don't want to hold you hostage here. So we built a platform called Lasso Book for that. And the reason I, I raise that is it's it was an interesting problem because it was an industry that nobody was going to spend any time on that fundamentally views customers as transactions. And we said, we're just going to flip that around. We're going to we're going to basically break two of the rules of software development and say, number one, we want to be in a relationship. We actually want to know every customer in the business. And number two, we want them to be able to own their data. And my friends in software go, well, that's just dumb. (laughs) I said, well, rather than total addressable market, what if we thought about it in terms of total impactful market? Mm. How can we bless these individuals and their businesses and be profitable? And we've demonstrated it. So we used a low-code, no-code approach to build out this platform. We've launched it with a very large and well-known guest ranch in Colorado, and hopefully we'll get more customers. But all of that was around a prototype. This is really back to your original point of saying, huh, that's an interesting problem. Can we solve for that? And we thought, well, we can, but we can't do it the way everybody in the industry does it because we're never going to have any economics of scale. So we said, let's design it as an example and said, we're going to use the five guys model. This is going to serve a distinct industry. At no time can they can our little company have more than five people. Hmm. And <laughs> can we replicate it across different industries and the construct of it and allow people who are doing the work then? So can we have moms who want to come back into the workforce end up doing a lot of this work with the ranches. Could we end up with Afghan refugees who are, who want, you know, technical training 
we wanted to be an on-ramp for individuals who wanted this type of really high quality work where you're actually doing the work and you're building the relationship with the customers all at the same time and said, it is perfect. Let's give it a try. It fits within, you know, we are under, we've working this thesis now because we know this is so is that, and you and I've talked about this, it happened in Italy in the eighties, but it's, it's, it's really called three things called diffused hospitality. It's called scattered hotels or horizontal hotels. These are all used together to de- describe taking and how do you turn turn your hotel guest into to guest of the community? Like That's how right. do they get to get into the community? And how do we, as people who want to save cities, use this mindset to 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 to, to scatter out our people that are staying throughout our community in existing facilities instead of building a horizontal, I mean, a vertical box right. to keep them in. And I, and I told our team, I said, the best hospitality experiences I ever had were not in a tower. They were not in a big multi-story thing with a hundred rooms stacked on top of each other. Right. It's, it's when we think about it and we, it's walkable, it's thoughtful. And Italy is beautiful in this. And what we believe is the future of re- restoring broken downtowns that are dead is a diffused hospitality overnight stay, iconic food and beverage, and celebratory events. If you can build that, and the reason we think this is because it's one way that the existing world of finance understands how to roll operational incomes up into real estate projects. Yes. And so you can build a, think about how many amazing resorts. And to your point, I think what you're building, God could use helping us and people who need leads curated thoughtfully to a place instead of treating people as a commodity, treat them as that they're the actual, that they are the thing. And that- Well, I think that's actually the, the big reversal as I think about it is that over time, a couple of things in my mind tend to be true, kind of like their gravity. It may start as a relationship, but there comes a point in which you have enough relationships that they become transactions. And I think that's where things really go off the rails because transactions are easy to scale. And when you reach, when you are approaching that point, most people run right by it without thinking about what are the implications that happens when we move from being a relationally based company experience, whatever it is, and we become transactional. And one of the things I help people with is let's do an experience audit. So hmm. what are the experiences that you create for your let's, you know, guests, customers, whatever? This comes right out of Joe Pine and Experience Economy, Jim, right? Jim Gomer, Experience Economy work. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked with them for years, and they have shaped so many things mm. for me. But one of them has been this Experience Economy, which is like, what is the belief that you want people to have as a result of the experiences that you're creating? So can we start with what's the belief we want people to have? And then we back into what are the experiences we're creating? I did this within companies as we were forming them or as we were taking spin outs or whatever and said, we looked, I looked at it internally, but most often people practice it in the external world with their customers. But it's a question of, can 
I name all the experiences that are being created? That's the question. The answer to that is always no, because we really don't pay that much attention to them. Mm-hmm. So if we can name them, then we can look at them and say, does that experience actually support the belief we want people to have? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that will, it, it can't always be yes. There are sacrifices that have to be made in some of the tension points. My only argument is you at least ought to know where the Do them on purpose. Is. I mean, yeah. if you're going to write a check, right? Well, like we were in Italy for Nelson's wedding. And, and and again, I realized that Nelson and my wife are 100 times smarter than I thought they were. That was my first takeaway from the thing. But he, <laughs> we we went to the food and we Nelson said, Dad, just open the Michelin Guide app and go to what shows up there. You don't have to be smart. He said, these are people that... So we went to a restaurant outside Milan called D.O., and and what it did for me is it forever changed the idea of what a food experience was. And the 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 chef wow. there, which gave us this amazing, he created the room we sat in, the entire design of the flooring, every piece of furniture, every light fixture he created. He created the table we sat at that had a unique little trough around it for your phone, so nothing sat on it. On the table, he created the chair we sat in that had an armrest on one side and a place for the lady's lipstick and things and a place for her purse underneath. He created every piece of silverware and everything we ate and everything we looked at. And I told him, you're an artist that shared your world with us. And it happened that you're celebrated with two Michelin stars and a green star. But that's not what this is about at all. And he said, yeah, my new concept, this concept has 20 tables. He said, my new concept is going to be the best ever. He said, it's only going to have three tables. And he said, I'm going to bring the very best of everything I got there. And what I realized is that it isn't a celebration of food, deifying food. It's God in all these beautiful. That's right. He creates furniture. He creates trees. He creates beautiful fruit and vegetables and ways to do it. And when you can see him in everything. And as you said, evaluate that experience changed me because I didn't see one thing he didn't care about. Yeah. From the door to the bathroom to the way the toilet paper holder was till the silverware you put, he cared from the time the door opened till it closed. Yes. You know, that is so, I think, foundational for every business. I mean, you and I can speak from it to it from a Christian worldview, from a knowing the author of things of him, knowing the author who created everything. But it's fascinating to me that these experiences, and this is what I see with North End, it's what I see with Lasso Book and other things, is saying, I can actually create something that gives people a window into the transcendent. So Mm. it speaks to something in them that say, there has to be something more to this than what I'm simply experiencing. So we create beauty. You know, we're doing this and you can see my background. One of the things that I have as a fundamental premise is that I intentionally put myself in the pathway of beauty every day. And I do that because it's what reminds me that the kingdoms, I can help people get a glimpse of the kingdom. You know, it's not that hard if you're in Colorado and the sun's coming up (laughs) over the mountain. There has to be something, someone bigger than me. But in the day-to-day experience you have, it's the same thing. So what the you know the gentleman you just talked about is doing is creating a pathway for people to imagine the transcendent. 
that they can imagine that beauty can actually be the answer, if you will, to the brokenness that's around us. When we create beauty like that, people are stopped in their tracks. They Tuscany is always my best example of saying it's really hard if you're in a if you're in a farmstead in Tuscany, when you look out the window, it it is impossible to not be attracted to its beauty. Then that begs the question of who's the author? Right. And all I want to do is give people the chance to ask that question. And the beauty of being a sub-creator is how I view myself, is that I can't make things out of nothing, but I can make new stuff every day. I can create cultural artifacts for people where they go, wow. Now, in this case, you know, it's a 28-acre master plan community with, you know, single-family homes, all kinds of for-sale product, multifamily, neurodiverse community that serves to be a blessing to people so that when people experience it, the question we want them to ask is why? <laughs> Followed by maybe the why is a follow on to the wow. I right. didn't know this was possible. Just like you do with your the diffused hospitality. People go, well, I can't possibly work. And you go, well, it doesn't work if the main narrative in the industry is to drive for efficiency and revenue per square foot, if you will. Right. So therefore, we have to go vertical. You know, I, I, we've talked about this before, but and you have the same mindset. When I run into people in the, they, they call, they, you know, people will say, I'm in the hospitality business. And I go, well, I think guest ranchers are in the hospitality business. I'm not sure hotels are naturally in the hospitality business. They're naturally in the land business. They just happen to be putting a hotel on it to maximize the value of the land. That, That's right. That's not a pejorative. It's just saying to say that that means I'm in the hospitality business is really demeans the word hospitality. When it's demeaned and, everywhere. And so Ash says she hates using it because people see it. And she says hospitality, she believes, as I thought of you before you got here. Yeah. She said, I, I, I was right. You, you were anticipated. And but, you know, one other thing she told me about beauty, she said, John, I'm convinced beauty is the result of love. It, it's, yes. it's what love produces. That's right. I agree with that 100%. And I think when you, when you begin to, and this is always hard for me, when you begin to inject love into a conversation, I'm like, why would you do this? So, so we want people to love, to have the resources, to have the wherewithal, to have the environment, if you will, to say, I'm, I'm really... I'm part of something here that's trying to love my neighbor well. That is almost jarring to people. You know, it's like you've just put a word into the conversation. It's like you get to use any word but that one. That right. One, it's it, it's, that it's like, how can you use that here? That's it. Like I say, we do sophisticated real estate development with love. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, whoa, that last part. Yeah, that's right. You ain't supposed to be saying that with sophisticated real estate development. Right, right. And I think, you know, this gets back to the conversation we had earlier that words matter a lot. So mm. I I will use the word love in conversations at a point where we've kind of walked through a journey and say, you know, what this really turns out to be is it's not just caring for people well. It's really loving people well. It's looking at them 
as a as a true human. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples here that I really don't care for the phrase human resources. Hmm. Uh, I think human is a fabulous noun, and I think it's a terrible adjective because what it does is it equates people with financial resources, natural resources, all kinds of inanimate objects. They have value and they should be cared for, but I don't think labeling, having a cluster of things of resources and then giving them an adjective does justice. So then you get to things people say, well, we need to rehumanize this. I said, you do know that people never stop being human. Well, I don't know what rehumanize looks like. You know, my it'll step on some toes, but like one of the phrases that's really hard for me to deal with is when people say, I, I'm a Christian businessman. I go, hmm. well, I, I think both of those are wonderful nouns. I don't know what happens when you give me Christian as an adjective and you put it with a noun. It's just confusing for me. It's just, you know, I'll just say that's me. But I think part of that is because language matters a lot. And it shapes people's perspective of what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And if we can give them a broader perspective and hold things dear, words that matter, that are truly dear to us, like human, as an example, it shapes a trajectory that is inevitably bigger. Like, what would we, what would we do here that celebrates, that enables, that empowers, that lets people do the things that they want to do that allows them to help other people flourish. And it's like, okay, that's kind of weird. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of weird, but what does that look like in practicality? It's like, well, would you like to do a study table? I I, I know your son happens to be a, you know, a musician in the, in the, in the band, he plays the guitar. Would you like to do something that enables other kids to have, you know, a concert? If they want to come together and play, we'll figure out how to do something, you know, within the community. Or for me, it's almost a sense of how do you help people's imagination? Or somebody says, those bees are pretty cool. I've often wondered like it'd be a beekeeper, but, you know, it's kind of scary. I don't want to go in there and get stung. Like, well, would you like to meet a beekeeper? Sure. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's so many things that are just more a matter of, how do we help people extend their imagination to what they could imagine and not be constrained with the notion of, well, this is this is how it is. And my framework is really simple. I look at it and I go, does anybody, this is usually our strategy work. Does anybody believe that this is the way the world ought to be? Mm. Nobody says yes. If the next question is, is the world the way it is, is it okay? And nobody says yes to that as well. Then the question becomes one of, well, what can it be? And that's where I really like to hone in because that's where the world of creativity sits. What what can we do? What can be possible? What can we create? I'm a big believer that we create culture Mm. uh, through the artifacts that we have. And then, you know, as a Christian, I look at it and go, and the best part about it is that the will, the world will be redeemed. That's not usually a conversation that we start with right off the bat, but it's like, do you, do you think we can make a difference here? Yes. Do you think the world will someday be better? Mm. That causes a pause for people, but at least it plants the question. So for me, if I look at the four chapters of the gospel, it always comes down to ought, is, can, will. And I would give all the credit to that 
to uh, a longtime friend out in DC who gave me that framework. And I, I use it in strategy work all the time. Is the world the way it ought to be? Is it okay the way it is today? Can it be better? And will it be better? So you are, again, this is like eating back to back fillets. I love you. I love the way you see the world and something about the way you see it makes my life better. It makes my heart sing. Thank you for being my friend. I look forward to spending forever together and I'm grateful for all the good things you're doing there. And thank you for taking a few minutes. Guys, this is just pure love and care. I mean, we're so grateful to be in the we're glad to be on the field with pads on. We're just glad to be doing something that is good and meaningful. And that, you know, our question is always, what could you do for the good of your city that will last 50 years and no one be able to undo it? Well, when you figure that out, go big on it for your city and the people who live there. You know, that idea came front and center to the way that the whole North End project was of saying, we start off and saying, this has got to have at least a 40 year vision not because we want to own it for 40 years. Actually, it's going to be in a trust. If the issue is, if people are going to live here, it needs to be nurtured for the benefit of the people who are in it and around it and who take advantage of it and who engage with it and all of that. It can't serve simply the needs of a financial advisor or the financial sponsor. And that realization meant that we were going to be in the long-term piece. You know, I'll close with this, John, because I learned it from you. Like, You can have a short-term vision, you can have a long-term vision, or you can have, I don't know if you shared this exact word with me, but what I heard you say was an infinite vision. And it's like, I don't have to win, I just don't wanna lose because I wanna do this again tomorrow. So if I keep doing it day after day after day, pretty soon I end up with having done it for 60 years Mm -hmm. and have been, really God's servant to be a blessing to people. And we've been able to pass that on as a legacy. That's all we're trying to do. And I, I know it sounds kind of highfalutin and like a, you know, like a utopia. I don't view it that way at all. There are painful struggles all the time, but I do mean it in the sense of saying, we need to have, as you've taught me, we need to have a big enough vision out over time to go, amazing things can happen if you just keep doing them for a while. And yeah. you've proved that with the communities that you're in. So I owe you a big debt of gratitude, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. And we're grateful. We look forward to seeing you soon. You've got an open ticket. You still got to visit the promised land and I got to visit your place. So we need to make <laughs> that happen in the years to come. We will do that. All right. Thank you, everyone who listened today. Please, if it's added value, share it with somebody that, and also like us and all the things you do if you like stuff. This is about adding value. And this is about trying to put decades into days. And Mm -hmm. I I just wish I would have had something like this when Ash and I started. It would have saved us a lot of time charging hell with a squirt bottle and making mistakes. So God bless (laughs) you. I hope you have a, a great week, guys. Thank you.